Hi, David May here. This is For the Record Program number 1213. The Narco-Fascism of Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang, Part 20. This is being recorded on November 10th of the year 2021. We are uh, rounding the bend and coming into the conclusion of this series. Before I do that, three links. These are at the top of each for the record program description. I write an article length description of each program to facilitate uh, navigating this admittedly very pedantic broadcast format. And at the top of each for the record description and at the top of each food for thought post, there is, there are, I should say, three links, one of which will enable you to subscribe to the comments, most of which are made by our brilliant contributing editor, Terra Fractal, and some of them by other listeners as well. The second link will enable you to subscribe to the podcasts that are being made by Sister Station WFMU. So if podcasting is uh, the Best way for you to consume the program, then Sister Station WFMU is making those available. And the third link will enable you to obtain the 32 gigabyte flash drive containing all of my life's work, 42 years plus and counting, plus a mini library of old anti-fascist books. The Latest iteration of the flash drive is uh, going to be ready very shortly and uh, will contain, I think, uh, hopefully up through for the record 12.15. So the, the latest iteration of the flash drive will be available shortly and I get no money whatsoever from any of this. Now, we are uh, going into the conclusion of this series and I have been examining how the world we live in in many ways and in particular U.S. policy vis-a-vis Asia have stemmed directly from the circumstances that are described in the remarkable book that we have been using for most of our program. That is uh, the Song Dynasty, S-O-O-N-G Dynasty by Sterling Seagrave. It was published in hardcover by Harper and Row. There is also a softcover edition. It gets the Dave Emery 5-star rating. And uh, the I, I should mention that Sterling Seagrave and his wife Peggy, who helped with the uh, writing of this book, were the target of a Kuomintang hit squad put together in Taiwan in 1985, and a high-ranking CIA official warned them about this and told them, quote, I would take this very seriously if I were you, so they'd camped to a yacht on which they lived for many, many years. So uh, they paid very dearly for the writing of this book. Now, in the book, there is uh, an account of a guy who for many years was the State Department's top official vis-a-vis what was known as Far Eastern Policy, uh, later Asian Policy, and that is a fellow named Stanley Hornbeck, H-O-R-N-B-E-C-K. And he introduced a metaphor that I think is brutally, ironically accurate in a way I don't think he meant, but we are going to uh, repeat this as our entry point into more discussion about the coup that took place in Indonesia. 
the man officially responsible for making U.S.-China policy, Stanley Hornbeck, H-O-R-N-B-E-C-K, the Doyen of State's Far Eastern Division, have only the most abbreviated and stilted knowledge of China and have been out of touch personally for many years. And skipping down. On this dubious basis, Hornbeck got a job as a lecturer on Asia at Harvard University in the 20s, published another book that did not stand up to serious scrutiny, and parlayed the book and his Harvard position into an appointment in 1928 as Chief of Far Eastern Affairs at the Department of State. This incredible stroke of misfortune for the nation gave Hornbeck control of the flow of information from foreign service officers to policy climbers at state and to the presidential cabinet. He withheld cables from the Secretary of State that were critical of Chiang Kai-shek and once stated that, quote, the United States' far eastern policy is like a train running on a railroad track. It has been clearly laid out and where it is going is plain to all, unquote. It was, in fact, bound for Saigon in 1975, with whistle stops along the way at Peking, Komoi, Matsu, and the Yalu River. And uh, we were talking in our last program about the bloody 1965 uh, U.S.-assisted uh, coup in Indonesia. Uh, JFK's assassination helped to keep American-Asian Cold War policy on that straight railway line described by uh, Stanley Hornbeck. Kennedy was going to pull us out of Vietnam. His assassination uh, basically reversed that as we have looked at. And in addition, JFK was working to maintain stable relations with Sukarno's Indonesia, which was a, a fiercely uh, non-aligned nation and uh, was seeking to remain that way. They were uh, uh, Sukarno was quite tolerant of the large Indonesian Communist Party, which was democratically oriented. They weren't uh, looking to seize power at all. They were popular, they were inclusive, and they were not atheistic. In fact, uh, minority religions like Hinduism and Buddhism, both minority religions in the majority Muslim Indonesia, were welcome in the Indonesian Communist Party. It was uh, basically a very uh, gentle and democratic institution, not armed in any way. And uh, as we have looked at in our uh, past programs, one of the great tragedies in human history is that when uh, the Allies reneged on their initial uh, statement that they would grant uh, independence to colonial territories uh, that had been occupied by the Axis powers during World War II, when uh, countries like Indonesia, which was a Dutch colony, and uh, what was known as Indochina, including Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam, which had been a French colony, uh, when they were not granted uh, independence, that set the stage for uh, the either with us or against us 
policy of the Bellis Brothers, John Foster at State, and Alan Bellis at CIA, who, if you were not allied with the West, meant you were allied with the Soviet bloc, and they began wreaking uh, havoc on non-aligned countries, including Indonesia. Uh, JFK was looking for a more normalized policy with Indonesia, was planning on visiting Indonesia in 1964, but his assassination changed that and put U.S. Asian policy back on that street railway line described by Stanley Hornbeck. We spoke at length about the coup in Indonesia in our last program, and we are going to engage in a speculative element in this program. I don't want to uh, emphasize that it is speculative. Looming large in what we are going to be talking about is the concept of the deep state. Uh, We have spoken about this before, and we're not talking about what uh, Donald Trump has uh, complained about, but rather uh, what uh, the brilliant Berkeley professor Peter Dale Scott has spoken about in some of his books. It was Barack Obama when during his two terms as president of the U.S., who basically oversaw the pivot to Asia. And then when Donald Trump, who's anything but an outsider, uh, when he was uh, elevated to office, he uh, ramped up the anti-China policy to the nth degree. And I would note that the forces involved in the January 6th incident uh, are basically the forces that uh, are involved in the anti-China policies as amplified by Donald Trump. People like Steve Bannon, uh, the exiled Chinese billionaire uh, Guo Wenghui, a.k.a. Miles Kwok, uh, people like J. Kyle Bass, network with Tommy Hicks Jr., who in turn networks with just about everybody, including uh, Donald Trump Jr., uh, and these are the forces that uh, have been behind the anti-China policy, as we looked at in the New York Times article called A New Red Scare Grips Washington. And uh, we're going to be talking about the deep state and engaging in a speculative element vis-a-vis Barack Obama. Again, Obama minted the pivot to Asia, and uh, that was really the change, fundamental change, in American foreign and national security policy. And I would note that Barack Obama's family genesis takes place in and around Indonesia at the time of this incredibly bloody coup. Uh, Roughly a million people, some estimates running as high as three million, uh, were killed in this coup. Many of them in the most brutal fashion, a large percentage of them were beheaded, uh, roughly 80,000 on the island of Bali alone. And rivers and waters around Bali uh, and other parts of Indonesia were choked with bobbies, so much so that advisories were given that the tourists should avoid many areas in Indonesia lest they come across the uh, decomposing bodies floating in rivers and in uh, the ocean. Uh, this is again a speculative element. I'll put some links into the description. Uh, to this 
program in the aforementioned flash drive that is available for a uh, minimum contribution. There is also a videotape of a lecture I gave in 2008 at Foothill College in which uh, I talked about Barack Obama and his candidacy in election 2008, and I spoke about uh, some of the indications that Barack Obama may Use uh, note, note the use of the term may, uh, then again, M-A-Y, M-A-Y, lest I be confused as stating this as fact, that Obama himself may be CIA. I suspect that he is, and I suspect that he is second generation, possibly third, thirds of reach. Uh, I'll start with that. His grandmother, Madeline, whom he calls Toot, whom he was uh, enamored of, worked as an executive at the Bank of Hawaii. The founder of that bank described his introduction to the world of finance when he was making traveling around Southeast Asia during the Vietnam War, making large cash payments to, quote, contractors, unquote. Well, three guesses who that might have been. Now, that does not mean that Barack Obama's grandmother was CIA, but it may mean that she was involved with an intelligence milieu, perhaps, who knows, quite deeply. I am very suspicious of Barack Obama's mother and also of his stepfather. And it's also worth noting that his biological father, who was from Kenya, uh, came to the U.S. under a joint State Department and CIA fellowship program that was sponsored in Kenya by a fellow named Tom Mboya, who was seen as uh, a, an alternative in Kenya and uh, elsewhere in Africa to the push by the Soviet bloc to uh, basically develop relations with labor leaders in Africa. Tom and Boy was seen as a counterweight to that. Uh, that does not mean necessarily that he was CIA. It does not mean either that uh, Barack Obama's biological father was CIA, but it might. Eventually, Tom and Boy was assassinated because of his feared slash perceived links to the CIA, whether or not there was basis in fact. But Barack Obama Sr. came to the U.S., and he met uh, Barack Obama's mother, Ann Dunham. Her full name, by the way, was Stanley Ann Dunham. Uh, Johnny Cash wrote and, song about, wrote and sang about the boy named Sue. Uh, she might be known as the girl named Stan, although she is called Ann Dunham. At the very young age, she met Barack Obama's biological father, again from Kenya, in a Russian language class at the University of Hawaii. And there, if you were studying Russian at that point in time, the chances are pretty good you were embarked on a national security career, either State Department or CIA or something like that. You probably weren't going to be making translations of Russian poetry or uh, Tolstoy for Harvard University. Again, not conclusive, but interesting and possibly, possibly significant. Eventually, uh, Barack Obama's stepfather, a fellow named Lolo Satoro, who was a civilian employee of the Indonesian army that committed the massacres in Indonesia, he met Stanley Ann Dunham at the East-West 
Institute in Hawaii when it was headed up by a fellow named Howard Jones. Howard Jones had been U.S. ambassador to Indonesia when he was replaced by Marshall Green, who oversaw in many ways the coup in Indonesia. He had been ambassador to South Korea when uh, South Korea experienced a coup and uh, Park Chung-hee's dictatorship took over there. Uh, and again, uh, he became head of the East-West Institute. That is where Stanley and Dunham met Lolo Sapporo, a civilian army, a civilian employee of the Indonesian army, or ostensibly a civilian employee of the Indonesian army that was committing the massacres. They met. Then in 1966, he was called back to Indonesia, where he began making maps for the Indonesian army in the immediate aftermath of the coup and as the coup itself was being solidified in Indonesia. It began in the fall of 1965, and he was called back to Indonesia in 1966. Shortly after that, Stanley Ann Dunham and her uh, young child, Barack Obama, traveled to Indonesia as well, and she worked in the U.S. Embassy in Indonesia at this very sensitive point in time for the U.S. Agency for International Development and the Ford Foundation. Both of those often serve as CIA cover organizations uh, abroad. Uh, they're, they're, it should be said there are many programs in USAID and Ford Foundation that are not CIA, but they are a very common CIA cover, and USAID in particular has funded for some of the most insidious CIA programs abroad. And it was while working out of the U.S. Embassy for those two organizations in this key point in time, married to a, an employee of the Indonesian Army, a civilian employee, who then went to work for Unical, an American oil company, and Mobil, an American oil company. And the oil companies were one of the major focal points of the uh, a coup against Sukarno because he had been moving to nationalize Indonesia's uh, significant oil reserves. Uh, by the way, in full record programs uh, 1054, 55, and 56, we took a look at uh, how Kennedy's assassination reversed Indonesian policy vis-a-vis uh, Asia. And what we're going to do in this program is to take a look at uh, the official account of Barack Obama's genesis in Indonesia. And again, I think that the account that we are going to be presenting is basically sanitized. I would note, too, that Barack Obama, between graduating from Columbia University and uh, going on to graduate work, I believe it was at Harvard, was employed briefly by the Business International Corporation, which has, as a matter of public record, served as a corporate insert program, uh, a company, I should say, for various CIA agents. That, again, does not in and of itself mean Obama is CIA, and I want to emphasize that. However, when you take a look at the overall milieu, his family milieu, and the professional milieu around them, uh, it looks to me 
as though Obama is more than likely second-generation CIA, and uh, his position as president of the U.S. Uh, the U.S. and the fellow who presided over the pivot to Asia, I think, raises interesting questions about deep politics and Barack Obama. I would note that uh, in Indonesia, uh, a microfinance program in which Ann Dunham or Stanley Ann Dunham took place took part uh, was overseen by Peter Geithner, who was a Ford Foundation operative. His son Timothy Geithner, uh, Geithner, excuse me, G E I T H N E R, then becomes uh, Barack Obama's Secretary of the Treasury. Again, it is a very cozy little. Uh, what, what, what the, the, the folk singer Tom Rush referred to as a small circle of friends, uh, and uh, I suspect that what we're looking at is a transgenerational intelligence network. We'll talk more about that, and we'll talk about Barack Obama's vice president, who is now president of the U.S., and uh, going gung-ho anti-China. We'll also talk about uh, Barack Obama's deputy director of the CIA, a woman named Avril Haines, who then went to work as a consultant for Palantir, the alpha predator on the uh, electronic surveillance landscape, and uh, the main property of Peter Peel, uh, a right-wing libertarian and contrarian, who was a mainstay of Team Trump. Uh, Avril Haines was a participant at Event 201 in October of 2019, which, for, which uh, was a rehearsal for something that just might happen. Again, this is October of 2019. They were talking about what to do if there were a deadly worldwide pandemic caused by a coronavirus. Amazing coincidence, because just exactly that thing happened. Then the aforementioned Avril Haines, a paid consultant for Palantir, deputy director of CIA under Barack Obama, becomes a member of Joe Biden's transition team and is now the director of national intelligence and oversaw the uh, introduction into seriousness, so to speak, of the lab leak theory. We'll come back to that in uh, our... in. Uh, an addendum to our series on the Oswald Institute of Virology. But again, deep politics is one of the considerations that we are looking at, and the fact that Barack Obama's genesis in Indonesia at this time period, when basically the soil of Indonesia was soaked with blood, and with a stepfather and a mother who were deeply involved with the very institutions that were overseeing that coup-related activity, I think it raises some interesting questions. Now, we're going to turn once again to a very, very important book. It gets the Dave Emery five-star rating. It is called The Jakarta Method, subtitled Washington's Anti-Communist Crusade and the Mass Murder Program that Shaped Our World, authored by Vincent Bevins, published in hardcover by Public Affairs Books, copyright 2020 by Vincent Bevins. And again... Very, very, very important book. Gets the Dave Emery five-star rating. And uh, again, I do not get any money from this. Now, about the oil companies and their central position in the machinations around the coup, because it was with Unical and Mobile that Lolo Satoro, Barack Obama's stepfather, was employed, as well as being employed by the Indonesian army that was doing the bloodletting.
Vincent Bevins writes. But U.S. officials were also very alarmed that the military government in waiting had not yet reversed Sukarno's plans to take over U.S. oil companies, by far their most important economic concern at the time. They, quote, bluntly and repeatedly warned the emerging Indonesian leadership, unquote, that if nationalization went forward, support from Washington would be withheld and their grip on power was at stake, according to historian Bradley Simpson's analysis of the declassified communications. The White House enlisted Australian and Japanese officials in the fight. They won. On December 16, 1965, a telegram from Jakarta to the State Department described the victory. Suharto arrived at a high-level meeting by helicopter, strode into the room, and, quote, made it crystal clear to all assembled that the military would not stand for precipitous moves against oil companies. Then he walked out. And uh, we are going to come back to this, uh, but we are going to first talk about something that was going on in Taiwan as well as Indonesia. Then we are going to come back to a uh, discussion of Barack Obama and his mother. And again, I think the account presented here is a vanilla slash uh, somewhat sanctified and overly charitable account, but I will present it as is. The island nation of Taiwan now being discussed uh, as, you know, China's going to attack Taiwan. Nope, I would be amazed if China attacked Taiwan. However, Taiwan was involved with some of the uh, destabilization efforts in Hong Kong. Perhaps one could use political shorthand, uh, the icon that became central to the, quote, pro-democracy, unquote, demonstrations in Hong Kong was Pepe the Frog. And that is the icon that was adopted by the Trump administration in their, quote, pro-democracy, unquote, demonstration, uh, such as January 6th. Now, the Kuomintang set up a dictatorship in Taiwan, which is on the island of Formosa. It was granted to Taiwan during the Cairo Conference, uh, as we looked at uh, not only Chiang Kai-shek, but Madame Chiang Kai-shek, nay Mei Ling Sung, and her brother T. Lee Sung, or, or actually, uh, uh, Mei Ling Sung and Chiang Kai-shek were involved with the Cairo Conference, and Formosa, which had been occupied by the Japanese since 1905, was granted to Chiang Kai-shek after he was defeated in the Chinese Civil War. They retreated to the island of Taiwan, and after massacring thousands of people, uh, reinstituted or constituted the fascist dictatorship of the Kuomintang on Taiwan. And uh, Vincent Bevins writes as follows here. The Republic of China the state set up by Chiang Kai-shek's nationalists in Taiwan, still insisted on its claim to mainland China and had long been, active, long been home to active anti-communist crusaders. The small dictatorship run from Taipei paid close attention to the massacre in Indonesia and sponsored attacks on the Chinese embassy in Jakarta as a way to weaken both Sukarno and Mao's regime in Beijing. So again, note that the Chinese embassy in Jakarta was attacked by Kuomintang-connected forces during the time of the coup. In 1966, Taiwan and South Korea, still run by Park 
Chung Hee, the dictator installed with the help of Marshall Green before Green took over for Howard Jones as U.S. ambassador in Indonesia, came together to found the World Anti-Communist League, or WACL. Congressman Walter Judd, J-U-B-B, and U.S. religious figures flew out to attend the first meeting. The new global organization built on a structure provided by the existing Asian People's Anti-Communist League brought together moderate conservatives as well as far-right radical groups that carried out atrocities for Hitler in World War II in countries like Romania and Croatia. should have been mentioned uh, that Ukraine was uh, a major epicenter for activities here. We're going to come back to that. It would go on to hold yearly conferences around the world, allowing its members to exchange support, intelligence, and tips for the rest of the Cold War, and was now, alongside the Brazil-founded tradition, family, and property organization, one of two such anti-communist organizations with global reach. The WACL also began to recruit students for the Political Warfare Cabrera's Academy in the Bay 2 district of Taipei. Like military academies set up in the U.S., the Beitou School began to train soldiers for the global anti-communist struggle. We've spoken about WACL in a couple, of, well, in a number of different programs, including and especially uh, AFA programs 14 and 15, and we came back to it in a big way in AFA programs 19 and 21. Uh, the former World Anti-Communist League was basically sort of a resuscitation of the Hitler-Goebbels anti-commentary made in the late 1930s, and uh, the Asian People's Anti-Communist League linked Taiwan, South Korea, and Japan primarily, and then the European branch, the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations, formed in 1943 by Adolf Hitler as the Committee of Subjugated Nations and composed of satellite states of Nazi Germany, Romania, Hungary, uh, Croatia, uh, Bulgaria, and most importantly for the purposes of the present discussion, Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine was a satellite state of Nazi Germany in World War II, and the fellow presiding over that uh, satellite state was a guy named Yaroslav Spetsko, S-T-E-T-Z-K-O. He, in turn, was sort of the political spear carrier for Stefan Bandera, both of whom are revered by the OUNB collaborationist forces that... Uh, successful forces, I should say, that uh, are dominating national security affairs in Ukraine today, and they were front and center in the Maidan coup. Now, the aforementioned anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations, nay, uh, the Committee of Subjugated Nations by Hitler, uh, named by Hitler in 1943, uh, had as its unifying element the SS. And as we have looked at in our multi-program for the record series on the Intermarium continuity, uh, the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations came to be dominated by the OUNB of Stefan Bandera. Again, one of the main people in that organization was Jaroslav Stetsko, head of the World War II wartime collaborationist government that uh, perpetrated genocide 
in Ukraine during World War II against Jews, ethnic Russians, and ethnic Poles. The uh, Ukraine, Poland, the Poland, the Polish-Ukrainian war was sort of like a war within a war, and roughly a hundred thousand Polish nationals were done to death in an extremely brutal fashion by the OUNB. Now, the OUNB had a couple of offshoot organizations. One was the Captive Nations Committee that was headed up, that was co-founded by Lev Dobryansky, a key member of the Ukrainian World Congress, and also the aforementioned Yaroslav Stetsko. That organization, the Captive Nations Committee, co-founded by Lev Dobryansky and Yaroslav Stetsko in turn, uh, had uh, a subsidiary organization, the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. One of its senior scholars, a German-born end times Christian and uh, doctrinaire fascist, I would uh, say, I think that's a very fair description, is a guy named Adrian Zenz, Z-E-N-Z. I doubt that he would uh, like to have himself described as a fascist, but given uh, what he advocates and with whom he associates, again, the victims of communist, of Communism Memorial Foundation, offshoot of the Captive Nations Committee and the OUNB, I think it is a fair description. Uh, he thinks that, uh, among other things, Jews who don't convert to Christianity are doomed to uh, damnation, anti-gay, anti-abortion, the whole bit. But again, it is Adrian Zenz of the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, offshoot of Captive Nations, OUNB, ABN, who is the go-to guy for the, quote, genocide, unquote, charges uh, surrounding the Uyghurs in Xinjiang province in in, uh, China. It is BS to make a long story short. We should also note that a fellow who represented the ABM at his Dallas conference, the Wackel Dallas conference, was a fellow named Ruzi Nazar, who had served as an officer with the Durlevanger Brigade, a notorious SS punishment brigade, then went on to work for the CIA and was a CIA insert into the National Action Party or National Movement Party, a pan-Turkist fascist political party founded by Alparslan Turkesh, whose youth wing, the Grey Wolves, has as its uh, most celebrated member, Mehmet Ali Ajah. The Grey Wolves are the Turkish component of the Stay Behind networks set up by Frank Wisner using various fascist cadres in Europe and, in the case of Turkey, in the Middle East. And again, as we have looked at, it was Ruzi Nazar who was uh, basically um, squaring around Isa Yusuf Altekin, the patriarch of the World Uyghur Congress and the fellow who was a collaborator of, with Chiang Kai-shek and basically, again, was sort of the patriarch of the Uyghur independence movement today. Uh, Ruzi Nazar had also served as an officer with the Third Reich's Turkestan Legion. In Hong Kong, too, we see the influence of the uh, ABN and OUNB. Uh, 
the Azov Battalion is a, an explicitly Nazi wing of the, the Ukrainian National Guard. They wear the swastika and the SS wound on their helmets. And one of the driving forces behind them, and for many years, for quite some time, I should say, their spokesperson was a guy named Roman Zvarich, Z-V-A-R-Y-C-H. He was the Minister of Justice under the Yushchenko government and under uh, one of the Timo, uh, Yulia Timoshenko governments, and he, again, is one of the driving forces behind the Azov Battalion. Elements of the Azov Battalion and Pravi Sector, another uh, Ukrainian Nazi group, decamped to Ukraine, to uh, Hong Kong, rather, as uh, part of the GONOR, G-O-N-O-R, organization that in turn was sponsored by an EU-financed NGO. And it was the glory to Ukraine, glory to the heroes salute that was used by the World War II Nazi collaborationist Ukrainian military and police under Yaroslav Stetsko and is now the official salute and of, of the Ukrainian military and police today that basically uh, became the inspiration for the anthem for the, quote, pro-democracy, unquote, forces in Hong Kong. Glory to Hong Kong. Again, that was uh, championed by uh, Joshua Wong, one of the many uh, U.S. intelligence associates involved with the, quote, pro-democracy, unquote, movement. Again, whose, uh, one of whose central icons was Pepe the Frog, and essentially the, the same forces behind the pro-democracy, unquote, movement are in many ways the same forces behind the, uh, quote, pro-democracy, unquote, demonstration on January 6th of 2021 in Washington, D.C. So when we see Chiang Kai-shek's Kuomintang sponsoring the formation of the WACL, uh, and joining the Asian People's Anti-Communist League with the ABN in the person of people like Adrian Zenz and the Azov Battalion and Pravi Sector in Hong Kong, we are seeing those same forces very much present today. Uh, in this series, we looked at C.B. Jackson, a veteran U.S. political warfare officer and psychological warfare officer. He was associated with the Crusade for Freedom, and it was under the, the Crusade for Freedom that many of these Nazi and uh, fascist collaborationist elements from uh, Eastern and Central Europe basically uh, not only came to the CIA, but the Republican Party, where they became the core of the... Republican Ethnic Heritage Outreach Group that we have looked at. Now, once again, reviewing very briefly, because we're going to come back to uh, the genesis of Barack Obama, uh, under whose auspices the pivot to Asia took place. U.S. reading now, again, from the Jakarta Method, U.S. officials were also very alarmed that the military government in waiting had not yet reversed Sukarno's plans to take over U.S. oil companies by far their most important economic concern at the time. They bluntly and repeatedly warned the emerging Indonesian leadership, unquote, that if nationalization went forward, support from Washington would be withheld, and their grip on power was at stake, according to historian Bradley Simpson's analysis of the declassified communications. The White House enlisted Australian and Japanese officials in the fight. They won. 
On December 16th, a telegram from Jakarta to the State Department described the victory. Suharto arrived at a high-level meeting by helicopter, strode into the room, and, quote, made it crystal clear to all assembled that the military would not stand for precipitous moves against oil companies, unquote. Then he walked out. Now, again, Unical and Mobile were two of the employers of Lolo Satoro, uh, Barack Obama's stepfather, as was the Indonesian army that was massacring the uh, hundreds of, uh, basically the, the death toll, probably a million, some estimates run as high as three million. But it was a massive bloodletting. And we're going to take a look at Vincent Bevan's account, I think, again, of the very vanilla-ish account, according to term, of the uh, Indonesian genesis in many ways of Barack Obama. In 1965, just after he retired from the State Department and left Indonesia, former Ambassador Howard Jones, again, who was uh, replaced by Marshall Green, who oversaw in many ways the Indonesian coup, uh, in 1965, just after he retired from the State Department and left Indonesia, former Ambassador Howard Jones took over as Chancellor at the East-West Center at the University of Hawaii. He kept in contact with the embassy and watched as the situation deteriorated rapidly, but had no more control over events. And now again, Howard Jones, ambassador to Indonesia, till he's replaced by Marshall Green, who was there during the coup. He goes to the East-West Center in Honolulu, and it is there that Ann uh, Dunham and Lolo Satoro meet. There at the East-West Center in Honolulu, a young Indonesian employee of the armed forces named Lolo Satoro met and fell in love with an American anthropologist. He wasn't a soldier, but he worked for the military's topographical service and had won a grant to study geography in Hawaii. He was a short, handsome man from a big Javanese family that had felt the violence of colonialism. In Indonesia's Revolutionary War, the Dutch killed his father and brother, then burned their house down. In March of 1965, Lobo married Anne Dunham and became the stepfather to her son from a previous marriage with a Kenyan economics student. But then, in 1966, as Suharto solidified his control over the country, Lobo was abruptly summoned back home, just like so many other Indonesians around the world. He obeyed, and over the next few months, Anne and her five-year-old son made preparations to go live with him as well. Barack Obama's memories of life as a young boy in Jakarta from 1967 to 1971, published in his book, Dreams from My Father, provide a vivid picture of life in the capital as Suharto's government and the U.S. State Department attempted to move on from the violence they had just finished inflicting on the country. And again, it is with the Indonesian army initially that he is employed then by Unical and Mobile, two of the American oil companies involved there. Continuing, the rule was silence. At first, neither young Barry, as he was then known, nor Anne knew why Lowell had come back or the nature of his work. Barack Obama remembers that soon after they arrived, they were driving and his mother used the word Sukarno in a sentence. Who's Sukarno? Barry yelled from the back seat. Lolo ignored the question. 
He was working in West Papua, surveying the area that Sukarno had won from the Bups with Kennedy's help just a few years before that's JFK. Lula would go on trips, Obama remembers, and come back with wild animals for his adventurous young stepson to admire. But Anne and Barry both noticed that Lolo had changed since Hawaii. Quote, it was, it was as if he had pulled into some dark hidden place out of reach, taking with him the brightest part of himself. On some nights, she would hear him up after everyone else had gone to bed, wandering through the house with a bottle of imported whiskey, nursing his secrets, unquote. To busy herself and fight the loneliness, Anne got a job at the embassy Howard Jones had left two years earlier, again, working for USAID and the Ford Foundation, both very common CIA covers abroad. It was there she realized how ugly and racist the old white men working for the government could be. They'd insult the locals until they realized she was married to one and tried to walk their comments back. She realized that some of these men, the occasional supposed, quote, economist or journalist, unquote, would mysteriously disappear for months at a time, and it was never clear what these secretive men were really doing. It was also there that she found out very slowly what had happened just before they arrived. Over lunch or casual conversation, they would share with her things she couldn't learn in the published news reports, unquote, Obama wrote. That's just not true. Some of the reasons why I frankly don't buy this, um, it, um, there were many accounts of what was going on, um, among them, on April 13th, 1966, C.L. Salzburg penned a piece, one of his many in this genre, the reading now from uh, something we had in our last uh, program from uh, the Jakarta Method. On April 13th, 1966, C.L. Salzburg penned a piece, one of many in this genre, with the headline, When the Nation Runs Amok for the New York Times. As Solzberger described it, the killings occurred in, quote, violent Asia, where life is cheap, unquote. He reproduced the lie that Communist Party members had killed the generals on October 1st and that Gerwani women slashed and tortured them. He went on to affirm that, quote, Indonesians are gentle, but hidden behind their smiles is that strange melee streak, that inner frenzied bloodlust which has given to other languages one of their few melee words amok. And as uh, Vincent Bevan's comments, this story of inexplicable, vaguely tribal violence, so easy for American readers to digest, was entirely false. And uh, the point being that it was not a secret what had taken place, and the, the notion that very slowly what had happened just before they arrived crept out again. Got my doubts, let's put it that way. Over lunch at casual conversation, they would share with her things she couldn't learn in the published news reports, Obama wrote. Innuendo, half-whispered asides, that's how she found out that we had arrived in Jakarta less than a year after one of the more brutal and swift campaigns of suppression in modern times. The idea frightened her the notion that history could be swallowed up so completely the same way the rich and lonely earth could soak up the rivers of blood that had once coursed through the streets, the way people could continue about their business beneath giant posters of the new president as if nothing had happened. Yeah, well, in April of 1966, a C.L. Salzburger of the New York Times wrote that piece. So, again, it, it just, 
he didn't have to get half whispered innuendo and uh, you know half whispered asides and innuendo. It had been published, and this, again, it's one of the reasons I think this is basically sanitized history. Uh, more about this uh, later. Uh, Vincent Bevins writes, The more she found out, the more she asked Lolo, and the more frustrated she became as he refused to answer. Finally, one of his cousins explained the situation and told her to try to be understanding. You shouldn't be too hard on Lolo, the cousin said. Such times are best forgotten, unquote. They grew further apart as he took a new job working for Unical at the U.S. Energy Company. Again, he also worked for Mobile. She didn't want to go to this company, dinner parties where Texas oil men bragged about bribing officials and their wives complained about the quality of the Indonesian help. It became clear to her and to him that they were American and privileged in a way Lolo was not, and that as a result he was bound to a life that maybe they did not want. Anne could speak out knowing she would never lose her American citizenship or the comforts back home. But Lolo was constantly forced into painful moral dilemmas. People in his world were forced either to stay silent and try to get ahead in life or to speak up and face the risk of poverty, starvation, even death. She couldn't stay there anymore. Once, before they returned to Hawaii, Barry had the idea of asking Lolo if he had ever seen a man killed. He glanced down, surprised by the situation. Have you, I asked. Yes, he said. Was it bloody? Yes. I thought for a moment. Why was the man killed? The one you saw. Because he was weak. That's all? Lolo shrugged and rolled his pant leg back down. That's usually enough. Men take advantage of weakness in other men. They're just like countries in that way. The strong man takes the weak man's land. He makes the weak man work in his fields. If the weak man's woman is pretty, the strong man will take her, unquote. He paused to take another sip of water, then asked, quote, Which would you rather be, unquote? Well, uh, <laughs> uh, three guesses with what the decision uh, Barack Obama made. That it also raises questions. If Lolo Satoro was a civilian employee of the Indonesian army that was committing all of these massacres, and if he then went to work for Unical and uh, Mobile, two of the oil companies in question vis-a-vis uh, the coup, under what circumstances did he see this bloody killing again? Think about that. And again, think about the fact that uh, his mother met his biological father at a Russian language class at the University of Hawaii after his Kenyan-born father came to the U.S. under the auspices of a joint program run by CIA and State Department. Does not mean that Tom and Boya worked for either of them. He was eventually assassinated by people who suspected that he was CIA. But he meets uh, Ann Dunham in a Russian language class at the University of Hawaii in 1960. That is interesting and possibly indicative. Then Howard Jones, who's U.S. ambassador to Indonesia, comes to Hawaii right before the coup, and is heading up the East-West Institute. It is at that institute where uh, Ann Bunham meets Lolo Satoro, a civilian employee of the Indonesian army that is overseeing the bloodletting in that country. 
she marries him, and then she joins him in Indonesia shortly afterward, uh, and Lolo Satoru again is working for the Indonesian army, then mobile, then Unicow, and Bunham comes there working for the U.S. Agency for International Development and the Ford Foundation. Later, while she is working on a microfinance program for USAI, for the Ford Foundation matter, she is working under the auspices of Peter Geithner. His son, Timothy Geithner, then becomes Barack Obama's Secretary of the Treasury. We'll also note that during uh, his graduate, his undergraduate and graduate studies, Barack Obama took a job with the Business International Corporation, which has, as a matter of record, served as a corporate insert for CIA operatives in the past. That does not mean that Barack Obama was one. But when you look at the overall thrust, the... Uh, overall topography, borrowing from what the Lolo Satoro was ostensibly doing, uh, it looks very much like Barack Obama is part of an intelligence milieu, very possibly a transgenerational intelligence milieu. And it was while Barack Obama was president of the U.S. that the pivot to Asia took place. His vice president, Joe Biden, is currently uh, presiding over the uh, all-encompassing anti-China, uh, well, basically the full-court press against China. Moving, for example, New York Times of March 23rd of 2021 by Keith Bradshaw and Jack Ewing. Biden's plans run into Germany. It's talking about the fact that Barack Obama is working to isolate China and that this may be very difficult because uh, China has strong business connections to China. And uh, I would also note uh, the following. Uh, Barack Obama has been uh, very vocal in uh, his pro-green policy, also accusing China of having walked, uh, basically uh, stuck out of the uh, Glasgow conference, as, as it turns out. Uh, today, John Kerry, it was announced that John Kerry had worked out a program with the Chinese. Note the following, though, from, again, the New York Times, Friday, June 25th of this year, 2021, Ban on Products, Pied to Forced Labor by Thomas Kaplan, Chris Buckley, and Brad Plummer. Uh, basically, uh, products allegedly using forced labor by the uh, Uyghurs in Xinjiang province have been banned the polysilicon chips used for solar panels. So uh, apparently uh, the quote, genocide, unquote, claims that we've debunked those in many programs, but they carry sway with the Biden administration. And again, the guy who has been the go-to source, pretty much the one-man army for those claims, is Adrian Zenz, who is a sponsor, being sponsored by the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, an offshoot of the Captive Nations Committee, the OUNB, and the ABN. And, uh, Again, note that um, the pivot to Asia took place under Barack Obama. Anyone who thinks that uh, Donald Trump was uh, somehow an outsider in Washington, that is ridiculous. Uh, he was first suggested as a presidential candidate by none other than Pat Nixon. His close friends with Helene van Dam, the protege of uh, Avo van Bolsving, in charge of Jewish matters for the Third Reich, later came to the U.S. and uh, worked for CIA. His first 
pastor, the fellow who uh, married uh, Donald Trump and his first wife is Norman Vincent Peale, who fronted for uh, Edward James Rooney, one of the very first uh, members of the American Nazi Party, and the political mentor for and counsel for as well. Donald Trump in his earlier years was none other than Roy Cohn, uh, Joe McCarthy's legal counsel and the uh, legal attack dog, who was one of the pivotal elements in the Who Lost China rhetorical battle cry during the McCarthy period. So anyone who thinks that Donald Trump was an outsider, and that is nonsense. Anyone who thinks that Joe Biden is an outsider, again, that is nonsense as well. Note that Biden is solidifying the uh, full court uh, press against China, and it is taking place in uh, the environmental field. Many of his Build Back Better plans uh, have been justified by Biden explicitly so as uh, necessary to, quote, compete with China, unquote. Biden was Obama's vice president. Obama's, Obama's deputy director of the CIA was Avril Haines. Then she becomes uh, a paid consultant with Palantir, Donald, uh, uh, Peter Peel's uh, electronic surveillance firm. She is a key participant at the Event 201 conference in October of 2019. An amazing bit of coincidence. They were drawing up rehearsal plans for a world, a deadly worldwide coronavirus-caused pandemic. Can you imagine that? A worldwide, a deadly worldwide coronavirus-caused pandemic. Now, aren't you glad that didn't happen and that Avril Haines' participation in that event was just, you know, happenstance, um, but obviously I'm being facetious. Then Avril Haines becomes a key member of Biden's transition team. Then she becomes Director of National Intelligence, under Biden, she is a China hawk, and it was under Avril Haines that the lab leak hypothesis uh, became uh, a, a respectable, unquote, alternative. Although, as I predicted, now they're saying, well, we'll never really know what happened uh, with the, uh, the as, as the New York Times put it uh, in a, an article on October 30th of this year, 2021, uh, by Julian E. Barnes, origin of the coronavirus is likely to remain murky. That is what I said. But again, uh, the investigation of the lab leak hypothesis was was undertaken under Joe Biden and Avril Haines, who were respectively Barack Obama's vice president and deputy director of the CIA. And as we looked at the record 1188 and 1189, uh, when the State Department began investigating, you know, they, what I call the Oswald Institute of Virology or the Wuhan Institute of Virology, uh, they were uh, basically shushed because they said that would open a Pandora's box or a can of worms that would shed light on American financing of those programs at the WIV. We'll come back to that in a couple of weeks uh, or a couple of programs when we revisit what I call the Oswald Institute of Virology. Now, again, I'll put some links in this. Uh, I want to emphasize that, obviously, looking at Barack Obama's Indonesian genesis, so to speak, this is a speculative element, and I want to emphasize that very, very strongly. 
However, when you look at it, it looks it's just the official version, you know, whoopsie daisy. It's, it's what I call the whoopsie daisy theory of history, you know. Whoopsie daisy, Lolo Satoro is working at uh, the East West Institute presided over by Howard Jones. Whoopsie daisy, he meets Anne Bunnan there. Then whoopsie daisy, the Indonesian army calls him back to Indonesia. Then whoopsie daisy, Anne Bunnan goes there too, working for USAID and the Ford Foundation out of the U.S. Embassy. And whoopsie daisy, Lolo Satoro sees uh, a guy bloodily murdered, and, uh, and Barack Obama works for the whoopsie daisy, the Business International Corporation. Doesn't mean he's CIA, but that has been a CIA cover. And his mother is working under the auspices of a Ford Foundation microfinance program presided over by Peter Geithner, whose son Timothy Geithner becomes Obama's Secretary of the Treasury. It is asking a little bit too much, I think, of coincidence. And uh, again, I suspect we're looking at a trans-generational intelligence milieu. However, that is all we have time for because we are out of time. This concludes for the record program number 1213, the narco-fascism of Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang Part 20. This is being recorded on November 10th of the year 2021. On Dave Emery, have fun.